Hide your kids. Lock the doors. You're listening to HR's most dangerous podcast. Chad Sowash and Joel Cheeseman are here to punch the recruiting industry right where it hurts. Complete with breaking news, rash opinion, and loads of snark. Buckle up, boys and girls. It's time for the Chad and Cheese Podcast. Oh, yeah. It's your starting quarterback's favorite podcast, a.k.a. the Chad and Cheese Podcast. I am Joel Cheeseman, your co-host. Joined, as always, the tailor to my Travis. Chad Sowash is in the building, and we are just excited to welcome Reed Mackey. Child Labor Advocacy Director at the National Consumers League and Child Labor Coalition. I bet that works really well with the girls at the at the club, doesn't it? <laughs> they look confused when uh, when they hear that. <laughs> we look confused, although we always look confused. So don't take it personally. Reed, a lot of our listeners don't know who you are. Give us a Twitter bio of what makes Reed Mackey tick. Well, I've been working on these issues for about 30 years. I started with a farm worker organization in, in D.C. Um, I went to school in California for a long time, uh, probably longer than I should have. And uh, I'm <laughs> playing ice hockey at a very advanced age. And I like to sail in the Chesapeake Bay and go to movies and hang out with friends. This is audio. Advanced age could be a lot of different ages. <laughs> Do you care to share your age? I'm I'm 65 years old wow. and I'm not and I'm not the oldest member of one of my teams. So rocking the ice at 60. Wow. And we're talking about low to no contact, right? Are, I mean, are that, you Canadian? Like it, what? Historic? Uh, Did you play in college? I, well, I grew up in Massachusetts watching Bob, a guy named Bobby Orr play. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's low contact, um, but okay. you know we have incidental contact that is can, can be pretty violent. So. No, no hip checks. No hip checks. Exactly. <laughs> is there a doctor on site just in case there is a hip check? <laughs> well, we we have a lot of professionals on our teams, so there's probably a doctor on you know on a couple of my teams. Listen to the humble brag. There are some I professionals that show up. You know. Some, you know, we got it. We, we got it. We got, it, we got to keep. We got to keep it tight. Guys. We got to keep it tight at sixty-five. Okay, okay, Reed. We're gonna dive right into this, my friend. Uh, the the topic of rolling back child labor laws has come up a lot, right? So states like Minnesota, uh, Missouri, Ohio, Iowa, Wisconsin, and, and and more are trying to roll back child labor laws, and and these state politicians say it's because of labor shortages, which have impacted industries like meatpacking and construction. So how did we get here? Can we start at the beginning? Why did we enact child labor laws in the 1930s in the first place? So let's start there. Yeah, I think that, you know, it was an understanding back then that children are are special. You know, the phase of their life is is developmental and Mm -hmm. they need nurturing and they need need to, you know, to be educated and, and learn things. And you know, in the early 1900s, the country had rampant child labor in all kinds of awful spots like um, coal mines mm-hmm. and factories. And kids are working 10, 12 hours a day and getting mangled in equipment and, you know, getting killed in coal mines and um, just all kinds of horrible situations. We were losing, you know, like thousands of, of, of kids and adults. I think I think back then we were losing 5000 workers a year. Mm-hmm. The good old days. Yeah. And then, well, then the Fair Labor Standards Act came along and it eliminated most forms of child labor in the U.S. It has a glaring exemption for kids who work on farms. And um, that's a big concern for us because we we see a lot of migrant children being exploited. Kids who are only 12 years old, they're allowed to work on limited hours on farms. 
um, as long as they're not missing school. So um, we see kids in the summer working like 80, 90 hour weeks and, you know, it's backbreaking labor. Well, how in the hell can you do that and go to school at the same time? Because I go looking back and in, in, in why we started it to your first point education, right? Our kids are our future and we want to be able to educate them to be able to obviously take over one day, not just at the farm, right? To build rockets, to be able to do some really cool shit. So so when it comes to education, how can kids work even 40 hours a week, let alone 90, and still be educated? Well, yeah, during the school year, we see the migrant kids, um, you know, they are required to go to school. The truancy laws are, are pretty good, but sometimes they'll work um, before they go to school. Sometimes Sometimes as soon as school's out, they go back to the fields. So, um, you know, putting in pretty long hours. And this is actually a problem that we're quite aware of now because, you know, kids have moved into meatpacking, which is an illegal form of child labor. And they um, came out of a DOL investigation earlier this year. The kids were working the night shift in a meatpacking plant, cleaning it. And then they were going to school. And, of course, they were falling asleep. You know, you, you would expect that. So we don't want to see kids sacrificing their future for a few years of income when they're teenagers. And, you know, we know they're from desperately poor families and they need money and we're OK with them having a, you know, a job, a part time job. But we don't want to see them working, you know, the night shift in a meatpacking factory for sure. What you're talking about, we're talking about poor families here, right? You're, you're not going to see a bunch of rich kids. Is that code in, for immigrants, by in, the way? In, in meatpacking. I would say somewhat. I, I would say there's probably a mix, but there are a lot of a, a lot of immigrants. Correct? Yeah. In, in So in the meatpacking situation, we're actually seeing a lot of unaccompanied minors who are kids that come over with no close relatives. And uh, there's been a surge in that population in the last four years. And that's one of the reasons why we're seeing all of these stories about child labor in factories and meat processing plants. The kids are completely vulnerable. They are here, you know, with maybe a distant relative or, you know, or a family friend. Yeah. And they, um, they've really got nobody watching closely over them. And they're desperate for money. They've left behind family in Central America or Mexico who are in desperate poverty. They'll take anything, basically. And these jobs are illegal and they're horrible. You know, they're horrible for kids. Yeah. I mean, they're not, they're not too great for adults. Right. But yeah, it's, it's, um, it's kind of how they're ending up there. To, you know, to the point of, yes, the, the unemployment rate is quite low and there are labor shortages, but we really can't balance the, a labor shortage on the backs of some of our most vulnerable workers who are teenagers, and especially putting them into dangerous situations. That, that's just not something we can do as a society. Well, I mean, the, the basic economics around this is is today the average meat packing salary in Iowa is less than $25,000 a year. You know, why so low? Uh, Reuters reported that Tyson Foods, Global Foods, JBS, National Beef Packing Company, and Seaboard Corporation financial statements showed a 120% collective jump in their gross profit since the pandemic and a 500 percent increase in net income. So these companies recently announced a billion dollars in new dividends and stock buybacks. And on the top of that, these companies paid more than $3 billion to shareholders since the, the uh, pandemic uh, has actually begun. So these companies have the money to invest in higher rate wages, to draw in more workers, and even invest in automation. So, so why are we even having this conversation? Yeah, you know, it's. I think you're absolutely right. If you're having trouble attracting adults to do your work, you have to raise wages. You have to make conditions better and raise wages. It's a pretty simple formula. You don't uh, hire, you know, 13-year-olds to work the graveyard shift right. using caustic chemicals. And, you know, by the, by the way, the only way this um, scandal came out was that um, one of the kids 
was in a classroom and a, a teacher noticed they had chemical burns and, and said, you know, what happened? And then the kids wow. told them and that, that teacher didn't uh, do what so many people do, which is nothing. That teacher called USDOL and reported it. And that launched an investigation that found um, basically that this was happening in 13 facilities around the country in wow. eight states. And, uh, you know, kids were getting hurt. There was a recent article in the uh, New York Times. There's been a few exposés in the New York Times about this this year. Mm-hmm. And they profiled this one kid, uh, Marcos, who was, when he was 14, he got his arm caught in a chicken um, processing plant equipment, basically almost tore off his arm. And uh, he was bleeding out, they thought. They thought his coworkers thought, looked at him and said, you know, he's going to die. Mm-hmm. They called 911. And when the 911 operator asked, kept asking them, how old is, how old is the, um, the, the, the person who's hurt? They got so flustered, they hung up on 911. Somehow the kid survived, but he has a, a useless arm right now with a mangled, with a hand that's in the claw. The arm can't be used. And uh, it just, I mean, it just goes to show you what's really at stake in some of these jobs, you know, that the, there can be like horrific traumatic accidents. Yeah. Reed, I want to preface this by saying it'll be the most important question that I ask you. Oh, God. Is that Ava Longoria in your LinkedIn profile picture? Yes, I was in. A, I had the pleasure of being in a press conference with Ava Longoria once uh, about 12 years ago. <laughs> and, and kudos to you for, uh, you know, humbly putting her in your profile picture. Keep that okay. around, my yeah, friend. Yeah, keep yes. that one around. It's probably an eight by 10 in your office. Um, <laughs> help me understand. So my family is, uh, I have a bunch of farmers in my family. I'm not one of them. And there was a time where this stuff made sense. People had eight to 12 kids. It was free labor. Uh, I remember my 13-year-old cousins driving around John Deere tractors that they probably shouldn't have been, but they were. That's why it was legal. And when you said agriculture was exempt from some of these laws, but people are having less kids now. Um, it seems like these laws are being bastardized to in- include immigrants, illegal immigrants, kids that aren't family. Oddly to me, states are now rolling back age limits on farms. Help me understand politically, commercially, why all this is happening or how it's happened. So there has been an exemption for children working on their parents' farm, that, and that goes back to the beginning of time, basically. And that's something that U.S. law um, you know, follows. You know, our work is focused on, on kids, like migrant kids, who are, who are working for wages, and the, 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 these ba- basic exemptions that allow them to work at, you know, as early as 12. And we actually see kids working be- before that because there are mm-hmm. exemptions on top of exemptions. And there's a thing called the small farm exemption. So even if they're working for wages, if it's, and it's, you know, it's not their parents' farm, um, but it's somebody else's farm. If it's a really small farm, then there's no, there's no rules that apply. And you can see an eight-year-old or a five-year-old, you know, picking berries. or A lot of the work is hand harvesting fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. And another loophole is that um, in the U.S., if you work, you you have to be 18 to do work that we know is hazardous. Mm-hmm. But on farms, which is actually one of the most dangerous sectors, and it accounts for half, more than half of the deaths of children of child workers, even wow. though even though only about three percent of child workers are are children working in agriculture. So that's how dangerous it is. So well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Three percent of the overall and fifty percent of the, the injuries of and deaths fatalities are on farms. It's oh quite dangerous. It's a really dangerous sector with a lot of. I mean, I, I just told you that the farm kids are not are not um, covered by these protections, but they're 
in some ways, they're the most vulnerable because they use the most machinery and they're the ones who have the most traumatic injuries. Mm-hmm. But, but the migrant kids, you know, they use razor sharp scissors and implements and they're, it's, it's a lot of musculoskeletal issues and a lot of pesticides. You know, we see a lot of cancer in farm worker families and, um, you know, the kids don't really know the risks that they're engaged in. We also see kids working on tobacco farms. Mm -hmm. Um, You're legally allowed to work on a tobacco farm at age 12. You can't buy cigarettes in the U.S. until you're 21. That changed a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have to be 21, but but we will put a kid in the field and the kids get... they get the nicotine residue on their skin, it absorbs. So they wear uh, black plastic garbage bags. They punch a hole for their head and their arms. And that's to try to diminish the amount of nicotine absorbing into their skin. But tobacco states, you know, the main tobacco states are like, you know, like Virginia and Kentucky, Tennessee, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. They're very hot in the summer. Yeah. Yes. So you have a kid. You have a kid, you know, maybe 12 or 13, uh, wearing a black plastic garbage bag in 100 degree heat, you know, and, and it's hard. It's very hard work. The, the plants go um, over their heads. Yes. So, yeah, it's just like, a, you know, it's kind of a um, Dickensian world out there for, for child labor. It's not, it's not benign. And by the way, if you're working at night, going to school all day, sleep deprivation tends to add to the dangers of yes. working uh, in, these, in these areas. I'm wondering, Reed, if you had a magic wand... How would you fix this? Would you change the laws? Would you change the tax structure? Would you change immigration? All the above. If you had a magic wand, how would you fix this? I know it's very controversial, but I do think immigration reform is probably part of this because, you know, the the adults are having trouble getting into the country and the kids uh, because of immigration rules, have been able to get in, which I'm, I wouldn't. I wouldn't change that. I mean, I think that they, you know, they deserve to have their asylum looked at. But if you, you know, if you need adult workers and Americans won't do some of these jobs, then having, you know, having a supply of adult workers coming in make kind of makes sense. Yes. You know, I think we need much better enforcement of the laws because the laws are pretty good for like the factories and the and the meatpacking and the facilities. But there's only 800 federal inspectors at USDOL for mm-hmm. a country of our size. I think, um, I mean, it comes out to 200,000 workers per inspector. Mm-hmm. Um, so that and that's a, that's a lot of workplaces. I think it's like 11,000 workplaces per inspector on average. Wow. So how do we amp that up? How can the 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 United States government amp that up and actually have more people to identify when things are going wrong, as opposed to that very small cohort of enforcement agents. Yeah, I mean, the main thing is to get an appropriations level that's, you know, substantially higher. Which is really going to be easy. That'll be easy (laughs) to do. There's no problem in Congress right now, right? But to his credit, Joe Biden, um, you know, has recognized that there's a crisis going on here that needs to be addressed. And so in his supplemental funding request that came out a few weeks ago, Mm -hmm. along with some disaster aid for hurricanes and things like that, he included $100 million of additional money for um, USDOL uh, enforcement of child labor. Now, that has to get through Congress still. Um, so, um, you know, chances are it might not, but it would be a great start. It would be a great start at hiring those additional inspectors. Um, one of the things that they are doing, though, is um, we have a lot of meat inspectors, food inspectors uh-huh. in factories. They are being trained now to look for child labor because there were inspectors that were seeing very young children in these plants and knew they shouldn't be there, but said, oh, it's not my job to look at that. And so they did nothing. But now they're being empowered 
to actually, um, you know, do something, make the calls, bring in the um, the DOL inspectors to deal with it. So, so being able to amp up and get more eyes. I mean, th- yeah. these are people that are that are in these facilities anyway. So, exactly. to be able to, to to give them the opportunity just to identify if there's there are other problems. Yeah, right? yeah, that, it makes total sense. The, and some of the other things that we really need, you know, we need higher fines. There we go. Orange jumpsuits. Yes. CEO <laughs> Tyson Chicken in a jumpsuit. That might yeah. Be, yeah. <laughs> When the meatpacking scandal broke, um, you know, basic DOL find the supplier of these cleaning crews, that these all-night cleaning crews, you know, mm-hmm. which hired so many children. That company was called PSSI, and they were fined $1.5 million. Now, that, that company has an annual revenue of something like $450 million. So they were they were fined basically like one day of revenue, which is not enough. It's not enough no. to really to cause much fear. And so... The other thing is that, um, and DOL recognizes this, they realize that they have to hold accountable the companies that benefit. So, you know, so the companies hire these staffing firms mm-hmm. and the staffing firms don't have enough due diligence and, you know, enough to look at the IDs and say, this is fake or, or you know, this kid looks 12 and he's saying he's 34. <laughs> so we need to hold the JBSs and the Tysons and the Purdue's accountable. DOL said it will do that moving forward, but it when it announced the results of their investigation in February, they didn't do it then. So so far, no, no, none of these giant companies have been held accountable, except for reputational, you know, reputational damage. Let's t- let's talk about th- there are sixteen-year-old kids that are dying. A boy from Guatemala who was just killed uh, at a job at a slaughterhouse in Mississippi, as reported by the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Two other 16-year-olds have died on the job in the U.S. this year, uh, one while working in a sawmill in Wisconsin while attempting to unjam a wood stacking machine, and he was he was pinned up and crushed. Then a another 16-year-old died in Missouri while working at a landfill and Pretty much the same thing happened. He was caught between, he was pinned between a tractor trailer and, and, and rig itself. So we're actually seeing deaths, but we're, we're, we've got these little bitty fines and we don't have CEOs in orange jumpsuits. The enforcement agents, I mean, they've got to feel like they're doing nothing every single day other than, you know, looking for spare coins in the corporate couches, for goodness sakes. How can we, do we need to stiffen the laws, number one? Number two, is the answer just stripping the state's rights away from this and just putting in a federal mandate? The states can have all the rights that they want, but they have to They have to at least meet the federal mandate. Do we put a federal mandate out there that makes us not back in the 1930s? Yeah, well, you know, th- and this is the context, you described it really well, this is the context through which um, states are trying to weaken the laws. Yes. But there's an understanding, uh, I'm not a lawyer, but my understanding is that um, if there's a, a protection at the federal level and at the state level, and they conflict, whichever is more protective is what is supposed to have weight. Yes. And that's getting kind of lost in all of this discussion as the states are weakening protections and extending the hours that kids can work. Uh, that's getting lost because the, you know, basically they're, they're in violation of the, of the more protective federal law, which is pretty good. The federal law it's not, it says that kids can't, in, except for agriculture, federal law, when it comes to like meatpacking says kids can't do it. Yeah. Right. When there's a conflict, then the, the federal law is supposed to take weight, but that's not being recognized by the people in the states that are enacting these laws. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of confusion for employers. They're going to think that they can, like in Iowa, uh, the federal law says that um, 
The federal law says that kids can work three hours on a school night. Well, Iowa has just changed that to six hours on a school night. So every every employer in Iowa is going to think he can do that, but technically they're in violation of the law and could get a serious fine from USDOL. Mm-hmm. So there's all kinds of rampant confusion that needs to be cleared up. And I agree with you, we should adhere to the, you know, it should, there should be gen- a general recognition, even with the public and business community, that we have to adhere to the federal standards. Well, it's interesting because there is a dynamic here, right? Most of these states, if not all of them, are pretty much conservative-driven. Uh, so they're on the Republican side of the House, and Republicans are always looking for smaller government, which is really a code word for less enforcement. I mean, we get to do whatever the hell we want, no matter what the laws are, and we're starting to see those rollbacks. I mean, it seems like a code for being able to, again, operate within my own means, let alone having to worry about state or federal government. So it's not universally true. Like New Jersey last year did extend hours for teen teen workers and they had a Democratic governor. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, it has been in conservative states. And it's really a concern. And there was some recent reporting, maybe two months ago, in the Washington Post that found that there is a conservative think tank in Florida behind some of these state laws. They're actually writing the drafting the legislation and handing it off to conservative legislators. Is it Alec? It's not Alec, but it's called the Foundation of Government Accountability, which sounds like an innocuous name. Yeah. But it's not an innocuous group. And and there's some concern that, you know, they're basically trying to undermine labor rights of the most fund of, of the lowest level workers, of the bottom yeah. tier, including teenage workers. And they have a they have a cadre of like a hundred lobbyists to help them enact these loosenings of protections. And I, I think it's shameful. You know, they're, apparently they're financed by a right-wing billionaire and, um, you know, who's, you know, a privileged member of society and, and, and they're going to great lengths to, to weaken protections for, for, for people at the bottom. Wouldn't, wouldn't happen to be a Tyson, would he? <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. I asked uh, about your magic wand read and two of the things that I thought you might mention, but you didn't, I want to get your take on them. Uh, one is automation and the other is increasing the minimum wage. What impact would you see having that on on this issue? Yeah, I think uh, I think minimum wage is a big thing. You know, one of the problems with agriculture is that the kids who, who harvest fruits and vegetables work on under a system called the piece rate, which is basically the more buckets they they fill, the more the family gets paid. Mm-hmm. And uh, and if those kids all got the minimum wage rather than you know, the piece rate, then I think we'd see some of the younger kids, you know, like I've, I've met nine and 10 year olds in the field, you know, those kids, um, some of those kids would, would not be hired if they were, if they were being paid the minimum wage yeah, mm-hmm. because they're paying, getting paid a sub minimum wage. And the piece rate is kind of, um, an inhuman form of work in- incentive, you know, it's Slave labor to some extent. Yeah. It's asking people to work at the limits of their capacity, you know, for like long periods of time. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. And as far as automation, I do think that that will happen eventually in agriculture. Um, it may take 20 or 30 years, but attempts to automate fruit and vegetable harvesting have, have usually fallen short because the fruits and vegetables are so easily bruised. And so you need a robot, robotic machine, basically, that has incredible delicacy. And they're, you know, they're, they're making advancements all the time. I think that they will get there. You know, in two or three decades, we'll see it pretty much all over the country, I, I think. But, you know, for now, we've got all these kids, we've got hundreds of thousands of kids um, working with their parents, you know, 12 hour days. It's just not right. And I want to get your take. Uh, this is some news out of California, uh, I think, this week. A new bill uh, signed on will require schools to teach students about child labor, workplace safety and rights to organize. 
thoughts on that? I don't see it happening in Texas, but is this something that may happen? I mean, unions are having a moment. Uh, dare I say kids could unionize and, and make changes or their parents? Like, where do, where do you see this going? Yeah, I think this is a good idea because um, I think that, the, you know, young people don't have really any, any, hardly any knowledge of the workers' struggles in the country over, over time. You know, I do think, we're, you know, where unions exist, we don't tend to see child labor. You know, like, a, a, you know, first thing a shop steward would, would, if he saw a kid working on a, on a processing plant, he would, he would file a grievance, you know, he would, he would blow the whistle. So I, I do think that, um, you know, unionization could play a pretty nice role in this. And in some of the meatpacking, um, basically what was happening is JBS agreed to, to unionize some of those cleaning crews. And, um, you know, that's the outcome. That's kind of the outcome we'd want to see, you know, like higher wages, um, adult workers. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think this is a great idea. So how, how does that actually have to happen, though, Reed? I mean, do, do they have to organize within or is there a body right now, a, a unionizing body of poultry workers, meat packers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that would actually go into these organizations to be able to push? Because as Joel had, has said, the unions are getting their mojo back. We've seen so much went from UPS, SAG-AFTRA with uh, UAW. I mean, there's, there's a nice push, right? 75,000 Kaiser Permanente workers walked off the job. That's historic. How do we start to push more for, you know, these unions in these, uh, these different workplaces? How does that happen? I mean, there's a recognition by, I think JBS, you know, realized that their reputation was at stake. Um, they, you know, they've had a lot of reputational issues in the past and they were looking really, really badly. And so they mm. said, like, you know, this is a way to fix this. I think UFCW, I believe, is, you know, talking with them about how, you know, how to bring about the actual unionization of these workers. You know, I think we just need more pressure. Consumers have to exert more pressure that these workers need to be paid better and should and should have access to unions. So a lot of people listening are saying this is horrible. Uh, this is awful. But what the hell can I do? Right. I'm just one person uh, in my daily life. Reed, you mentioned more consumer pressure. But against who, uh, what industries, should people be writing checks to nonprofits that are fighting this? Should they be writing their congressperson? Like, what can the average person do listening right now to make a change? All of those things. Yeah, I think they, you know, um, so in Congress right now, there are at least four bills that would increase child labor fines. And, um, you know, they can they can write to their member of Congress and say, hey, I, you know, I learned about child labor. I, fines need to be increased. Let's you know, let's let's provide more money through appropriations for in, for enforcement agents, and let's raise fines. Then their member can then co-sponsor those bills. Once they get enough co-sponsors, then then leadership sees them as viable bills, and then you know has a chance to pass. So yeah, and I think I mean if people like to write letters, I think writing a letter to, you know to the presidents of Tyson's and JBS and Purdue and all, all of these um, meatpacking. And, you know, that does seem to be a sector that has been particularly hard hit. You know, last year we saw that um, they were funding kids and suppliers to Hyundai. You know, I mean, Hyundai did seem to take take the situation seriously. But, yeah, writing letters to corporations and saying, you know, I'm a, I'm a consumer. I buy your product. I, you know, I, I'd like to think that you're producing them ethically. Can't, let, let's fix this, you know. Is there any uh, documentation of like what politicians, what members of Congress are fighting for this issue? So if people do want to write a check or or get behind a candidate, is there something that they can go to for that? Like on your website or or have you guys published anything? We have a fact sheet that lists the bills 
and um, with a clip, a, a link to congress.gov where you can see like who introduced the bills. There's a brand new, this is something that hadn't existed before. It's a, a child labor prevention task force in Congress. So it's congressional members. The leadership on that seems to be Dale Kildee in Michigan and, and Representative Schulten also from Michigan. But there's, yeah, there's some um, half a dozen members or so of Congress that are on that on that task force. There are a number of members of Congress, especially on like the agriculture side. We've, we've had bills for, you know, for two decades that haven't really moved, but, you know, they could move and they need our, they need the support of the public as well. Yeah. Well, Reed, we appreciate you taking time out of the day to, to, to talk to us about, about this incredibly, incredibly important subject. If you would, if you could, can you tell our listeners where they can find out more about you, about this cause? And then also, how can they connect with you? Yeah, so um, you can visit um, stopchildlabor.org, which is our website. Learn about the Child Labor Coalition, uh, 35 great groups that come together to fight to reduce child labor. If somebody wants to send me an email, they can they can email me at reidm at nclnet.org. I'm going to make a TikTok, Chad, and I'm writing a tweet to Elon Musk. That'll fix this whole thing. It's, it's, it's going to happen. Reed, thanks for joining us, Chad. Sure. That's another one in the can. I feel smarter, but I kind of want to jump off a ledge right now. Anyway, another one in the can. Thanks for your time, Reed. And we out. We out. Wow. Look at you. You made it through an entire episode of the Chat and Chase podcast. Or maybe you cheated and fast forwarded to the end. Either way, there's no doubt you wish you had that time back. Valuable time you could have used to buy a nutritious meal at Taco Bell. Enjoy a pour of your favorite whiskey. Or just watch big booty Latinas and bug fights on TikTok. No, you hung out with these two chuggleheads instead. Now go take a shower and wash off all the guilt. But save some soap, because you'll be back. Like an awful train wreck, you can't look away. And like Chad's favorite western, you can't quit them either. We out.